You're listening to the Christian Humanist Radio Network. Christian Welcome to episode 182 of the Christian Feminist Podcast. I'm Victoria Reynolds-Farmer, and with me today are regular panelists Alexis Neal and Sarah Thomas. Hey, Alexis and Sarah. Hello. Hi. Before we dive into tonight's topic, let's introduce ourselves for any listeners that are new to the program. Alexis, you go first. Sure. My name is Alexis Neal. I live with my husband, Coyle Neal, of the City of Man podcast, the political science podcast of the Christian Humanist Radio Network um, in southern Missouri, uh, where I spend most of my time with my two boys, uh, whom I homeschool and care for primarily as a stay-at-home mom. Uh, I'm an attorney by training and currently working as an elected official for our rural community. So that keeps my my brain pretty pretty busy when I get tired of Cheerios and fruit snacks. Thanks, Alexis. And who doesn't love Cheerios and fruit snacks? I mean, that's a fair point. <laughs> Sarah, how about you? Hi, I'm Sarah Thomas, and I live in uh, the metropolitan Atlanta area, um, where I am currently trying to uh, keep my two dogs, Archie and Ursula, um, out of all of the birds' nests, um, we have a couple of pairs of mating cardinals who have come back to the backyard, but now my dogs want to play with them. Um, I'm also in the process of uh, these days trying to uh, set up my uh, recording setup so that I can uh, record the audiobook version of the book Saving Mind, Saving Souls that I published back in the fall. Um, and when I'm not doing that, I teach high school English at, um, at a Catholic high school. Thanks, Sarah. And uh, we got to get an episode on your book on the schedule. Uh, it is great. I have read it. Uh, so we should, uh, we should share that with everyone. Oh, thank you. That would be wonderful. I'd love to do that. Awesome. Uh, hi, everyone. I am Victoria Reynolds Farmer. I'm one of the founding members of the Christian Feminist Podcast. Uh, I live with my husband, Michael Farmer, of the Christian Humanist Podcast in a suburb of Atlanta, um, just a few minutes down the road from Sarah, in fact. Uh, I have a PhD in literature and gender studies from Florida State University. Um, and relevant to uh, some of tonight's discussion, I am a fairly recent convert to the Catholic Church um, uh, about two years ago now. Uh, so tonight's episode is on Leah Labresco Sargent's wonderful, uh, in my opinion, newsletter, Other Feminisms. Uh, it's one of the very few substacks I pay for, and I really think it's worth the money. Uh, so that's what we're going to discuss tonight. Before I give some background, though, on Leah Sargent herself and her newsletter in general, um, since I have a little bit more experience with this newsletter than the two of you, um, I'd like to ask for your impressions um, as someone newer to the newsletter. What did you assume something called other feminisms would be about? And did the reality, at least the reality of the two issues we have read for this episode, match your expectations? I can go first on that one. Um, I, when I first heard the title uh, "Other Feminisms," and I know Victoria, you and I had, uh, you actually had recommended it to me a little bit ago, um, before this episode was on the schedule. Um, I had assumed that the other uh, referred to uh, feminisms that might be outside of the sort of waves, you know, the sort of four waves model that uh, we might be familiar with. So um, 
so uh, feminisms or ways of approaching um, gender and identity from uh, an intersectional standpoint. Um, and uh, what I found was that, yes, it is doing those things, but in um, in a way that I hadn't quite expected, um, in a way that I think was um, more affirming for some of the thought processes I've been going through as far as um, considering gender and uh, complementarity and relationship um, and how those things are sort of addressed. Um, so, yeah, I was uh, in some respects confirmed and or affirmed and others uh, surprised. And I'm so glad that I was exposed to this and that I have the opportunity to talk about it tonight. That's great. I'm glad that you uh, enjoyed it. And it's always nice to be pleasantly surprised, I think, by something we're exploring on the show. Alexis, what did you expect from this? And did you get it? I actually expected, I think, a lot of the same things that Sarah's talking about. Um, I was thinking about what are the modifiers that I often see in front of feminism. And a lot of times they will have to do, there'll be, there'll be a racial modifier, like it's white feminism or black feminism or some other facet of intersectionality um, that would be in some ways narrowing the focus or just, or opening it up to, to a new, um, to a new angle. Uh, but the little bit that I knew about Leah Sargent made it, I felt like it was unlikely that she would be taking up the mantle of speaking for um, some groups that, as far as I knew, she did not belong to. Um, and so I, I kind of came in without specific expectations, because like I said, the one thing that came to mind seemed unlikely. Um, and so uh, I was also pleasantly surprised, in part because I didn't have specific expectations um, and I'm, I'm not entirely convinced that I think it's the, an, an accurate name, um, but I appreciate what, what they're trying to do, and I certainly really enjoyed the newsletters and appreciated the chance to get to read them. Um, well, she doesn't exactly think it's an accurate name either, right. um, which, I, which I think is interesting. I'm going to go ahead and read um, from the newsletter's mission statement and a little bit from its about page to touch on that before we jump into the issues we read. Uh, so the mission statement says, Other Feminisms is a newsletter for women who are an uncomfortable fit with present-day feminism. It's a space to ask questions, find new allies, and strengthen projects. And she goes on to say, For most people, what drew them to this group was wanting to advocate for women as women. Um, and, and there is a lot, I, I'm editorializing now, of um, discussion in the newsletter about um, motherhood, biology, uh, things that might be a little more um, essentialist than typical mainstream feminism here, uh, just so people know. Um, okay, Sargent is talking again now. Often our equality is premised on remaking ourselves to be more like the median man, whether that means changing our style of speaking to exclude apologies, changing our breastfeeding plans to keep up with work's minimal accommodations, or changing our bodies to suppress fertility. We say no, and that instead the world must remake itself to be hospitable to women rather than the other way around. That means valuing interdependence and vulnerability rather than idealizing autonomy. We are not a uniform group, and there are topics on which folks signing up are deeply divided. There's not a specific set of policy positions you need to sign on to in order to be a part of this community. Uh, what do the two of you think about those definitions? Do they resonate with you? I mean, I was basically, when I was looking over that, I was like, yes, amen, preach, yes, amen, as I was reading. So yes, I was, I was a hard yes on all of everything. Um, and honestly, it sounded very familiar. It sounded like a lot of what we, we do here, um, where we are not in agreement on all things, but, um, but we do share some priorities in common. So it was both, yeah, familiar and, and encouraging. And I was, I was like, tell me more. I'm, I'm on board with all of this. For me too, I felt uh, I felt similarly uh, to what Alexis just described, and um, in addition, I found a lot of it uh, familiar to me because uh, back in the fall, I was able to go to 
uh, to a one-day conference in uh, Tennessee that was hosted by a group called Femme Catholic. Uh, so looking at, uh, you know, at what it means to be Catholic and, um, and a feminist and a lot of what uh, a lot of the discussions that came out of that conference, yes, were very similar to the uh, the statements made um, in the about page on other feminisms. So it was it was heartening to see uh, to see that message. So uh, understanding, um, you know, uh, understanding ourselves as women and you know moving through the world as women and trying to get the world to understand what it means to acknowledge um, and make space for women moving through the world as women was, um, uh, was yeah, heartening to see uh, coming from, uh, from another avenue after having heard some of these discussions back in October. I, I would agree with that. I These definitions really resonated with me, um, not least of all because I feel like both my religious and my political identities have changed fairly dramatically in the 10 years that we've been doing this podcast. Um, the ways that I felt like mainstream feminism did not uh, include me 10 years ago have shifted a little bit and I, I feel like widened um, and aren't just entirely theological these days as they were then. Um, particularly, I love what uh, Sargent says about the idea of interdependence. Um, I know I've spoken about that on this show previously, um, particularly as uh, a disabled woman, that is an issue that I think about a lot, probably more or in different ways than most people. And I appreciate that she um, explores that issue of interdependence, both politically and theologically, because I think um, even issues of ability aside, God calls us to interdependence with one another, um, you know, he says that that we are our brother's keeper and that um, that it's a, a very high call to love one another as brothers and sisters in Christ. And I think that that message is um, fairly antithetical to social political messages of um, autonomy and, and independence above all things. So that's that's something that really draws me to this newsletter is I think that not only is it a community that discusses those issues, but it's a community that um, is modeled as a community that also practices those issues. Um, so that's that's something else I'd like to talk about. How is this newsletter structured and and what kind of community is, is growing out of that structure? Well, I think to your point about interdependence, um, one of the things... Um and maybe I'm just I'm stealing this a little bit, but when I was I was sharing these newsletters with my husband because I found them so um, interesting and thought provoking, and one of the things that he mentioned was that in many ways Sargent, the author, is absent from some of these. A lot of it is highlighting uh, either the the sources that she is bringing to her readers' attention, uh, summarizing them a little bit, maybe int uh, interspersing it with some commentary. Um, but and certainly the the second piece that we read, uh, highlighting a lot of the comments from her readers to a previous issue, um, and it, it seems like in in some ways maybe it's a reflection of that interdependence that you're talking about. That it's not just you get this newsletter and you get, you know, Leah Sargent tells you all the things that she thinks about all the things, and instead it is let's weave these things together. What do you think? Let's let's um, interact and and process through that learning from one another. So in some ways, I think the, 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 um, the way that it's structured echoes even those themes of, of interdependence. Yeah, I, I would agree with that. And I think it's definitely the thing that made me want to pay money for the newsletter the most is that I feel like it's, it's not just talking the talk, it's walking the walk, so to speak. Um, there are links and excerpts from her pieces like you would expect from a substack, but there are also 
um, discussion questions, comments from community members. As you said, Alexis, she often um, begins a newsletter with reader comments uh, responding to a previous piece. So you get this feeling of an ongoing um, rich conversation. Um, she also, um, and and maybe this is, is just me having read uh, more issues than we read for this, but I was kind of interested to hear you say she felt absent because one of the other things that I like um, about the newsletter is that I feel like she really seamlessly integrates personal narratives about her family and her children and kind of typical quote-unquote mommy blogger kind of content with um, pieces that are more politically informed and engaged um, and more, not exactly academic, but um, serious-minded, for lack of a better term. And obviously, I don't mean that issues of motherhood are not serious, just that stereotypically, uh, we don't think of women's personal narratives as serious like we do other things. So I, I really enjoy that mix of genres and contributions, as well as the highlighting of, of other people's um, work and conversation. Well, I don't, I don't mean absent in any kind of pejorative or, or, or critical sense. It's more compared to what I might expect based on other substack pieces that I've read from, from other sources, where it's this person and their opinion, and that's you're, you're getting kind of just a steady stream of that, um, as opposed to some, but a lot of other voices too, if that makes sense. Sure. I, I think that often substacks are, and, and for good and valid reasons, um, a vehicle for self-promotion of one's own work. Um, and, and some of that is happening here, and she's a fantastic writer, and, um, and you know, that's, that's not, I'm not disparaging um, self-promotion. In fact, you know, women probably need to be told to self-promote um, more, given kind of societal defaults. But I, I do like that that's not the only thing going on here. So now that we've talked a little bit about uh, Sargent and the structure of the newsletter in general, actually, we haven't. I skipped the biography part. Uh, apologies, listeners. Uh, Leah Labresco Sargent is a writer, a speaker, um, a mother and wife, and a Catholic convert. Her writing has appeared in uh, many prestigious places like First Things, America, The American Conservative, Commonweal, The American Interest, uh, and Plow, among others. Uh, she's written two books, Arriving at Amen, which is a, a series of uh, Catholic prayers, uh, and I have not read that, but I'm thinking about buying it for myself for Lent, uh, and building the Benedict option, uh, which I have read and do recommend. All right. Apologies for skipping that the first time through. Uh, and now let's dive into the first uh, reading for this episode. Uh, I asked us to read the issue entitled Family is a Place for Burdens, uh, which is a response to Richard Hananiah, who speaks um, on Twitter and in other um, public discourse areas quite a lot about issues of um, euthanasia and assisted suicide. Uh, and Sargent responds to that. So why might it be valuable in talking about other feminisms to expand the scope of feminism um, as the mainstream defines it, to include issues of uh, life, aging, euthanasia, the kinds of things that, um, that Sargent is responding to here? Well, for me, it seems like a natural extension of of considering a um, uh, what uh, what in some circles might be considered a holistic feminism, or what's you know what uh, Sargent calls other feminisms um, that 
to consider the um, that to consider what it means to move in and through the world as women needs to account for all stages of women's uh, of women's lives. And I think that dovetails and, you know, maybe I don't want to put words in her mouth, but, uh, you know, I could certainly see an argument that it's a natural extension of a consistent life ethic Um, that, you know, that understanding uh, what life is um, and and the sacredness of life um, from, you know, I know sometimes the uh, the. Uh, the tagline is from womb to tomb uh, would certainly suggest that uh, that any feminism that's going to be holistic, that's going to sort of embrace the full experience of women needs to uh, consider both ends um, of that uh, of that experience. If that makes any sense at all, I realize I might have started rambling at that point. <laughs> no, I, I think it does. Um, and I this is one of those issues where I really appreciated the interpolation of kind of personal family narrative. Um, Sergeant quotes a, a bit from Hananiah um, that I'm just going to read, and then I will paraphrase um, a bit of Sergeant's response. Uh, I don't like inconveniencing others, and for many parents, the possibility that one day they could be a burden on their children scares them much more than death. I think this is a noble sentiment and would gladly sacrifice myself when I'm old so that those I care about can live better and more fulfilling lives. If we're going to talk about human dignity, I could think of nothing less dignified than ending a proud and successful life in diapers and with your brain rotting away, making your children miserable and preventing them from reaching their full potential. Um, And then Sargent um, talks about the fact that essentially full potential is in the eye of the beholder and that um, living life together as a family necessitates dependence and interdependence and that um, essentially that she has a a slightly different uh, definition of what human dignity looks like and that what human dignity looks like for her is teaching her children that relying on each other is holy and good and caring for each other is holy and good and part of familial responsibility. Um, Alexis, do you have any thoughts here? So part of the, the challenge that I had here, and, and part of this may be because I'm a, a later arrival to some of the, the feminist ideas that we've engaged with in the years that I've been on the podcast, but a lot of these ideas didn't seem to me to be uniquely feminist so much as related to humanity, the the idea of human dignity um, and humans made in the image of God seemed to be undermined by the attitude that was being espoused by Mr. Hananiah. And I I was looking at um, Alan Jacobs, um, short piece that that Sargent identifies at the beginning of the newsletter as sort of what pointed her to Hananiah's piece and his summary or not summary he said there's there's so three underlying assumptions here and I really like them because they're just very like sort of baldly stating what Hananiah is assuming Uh, a proud and successful life is an independent life that is if you are dependent on anyone you cannot be proud and successful Uh, Conversely, dependence on others is shameful, and to care for a person who is dependent on you is only a source of misery, Um, all of which is kind of gross, Um, and maybe not just kind of gross, maybe just gross. Um, I I wrote ghoulish in my notes. Yeah, it it was really... I'm kind of, not kind of, I am disgusted by this. It is disgusting to me. The, the more I thought about it, because, of course, he's spite writing about it in the context of aging, but that's not the only context where you would be caring for somebody who relies upon you and may or may not be able to do things for themselves, including, um, you know, be continent and control their, their bladder or uh, retain use of or have ever had use of their, their mental uh, faculties. And so um, the idea that somehow... Yeah, your worth is tied to how hale and healthy you are and how much you don't have to depend on other people. Boy, that seems really dangerous and terrible. And 
and very much at odds with what we see, you know, the way that we see Jesus caring for people in the New Testament. Um, and, and yeah, it's similar to, to, to what you were saying and what Jacobs was saying. Um, you know, what is, what is full potential? Is it being a compassionate, caring person who sacrifices for those that they love? Boy, that's, that sounds like a real failed human being. I, I, I don't, I understand the the impulse there, and I get the impulse certainly not to inconvenience others, although I think part of that is we don't want to be indebted to others because we don't want to owe others any, because we don't want to owe God anything, and there's all kinds of sin issues, I think, tangled up there. But, uh, so I I get the impulse, but it's selfish and deluded, (laughs) I think. And so, um, you know, it, it is not the case that, you know, the way that the Lord wants to sanctify me and, and cause me to reach whatever full potential he has for me may very well be through sacrificing my aspirations and dreams to care for someone else or finding a way to do both things the best I can in the moment because he sacrificed for me more than I could ever sacrifice for any family member, no matter what they demand of me. Um, so, um, but then also I looked up and um, I found out that um, Hananiah is 36 and I also kind of had a moment of like, oh, well, and, uh, and not to be, you know, ageist or dismissive, but I was like, ah, yes, well, he is 36. So maybe not that that's a, you know, spring chicken, but I definitely had a moment of like, yes, well, we'll see what he thinks in another, you know, 30 years of walking around on the planet and being with people. And maybe, maybe he will be shaped. Not that I'm, you know, that much older, but still it, it felt like a, it put a different spin on it to realize that it was coming from a young, presumably healthy man um, who probably has felt right or wrongly that he is independent and can do for himself and maybe hasn't had the opportunity to have his full potential realized by sacrificing for others yet. So maybe there's going to be a change coming with time. Yeah. I, I had to stop reading his Twitter, um, which a number of people have sent to me on a number of occasions. Um, because as someone who, uh, is involved though to a kind of small degree, to some degree in um, disability activism, uh, disabled activists tend to be drawn into the um, sort of euthanasia, life ethic, burden on society uh, discussion quite often for obvious reasons. And I, I just, it's not good for my soul to feel the need to reply to things like that. Um, so I, I try to be aware of it, but not directly uh, engage with it, which is why I'm, I'm kind of uh, responding to this through Sargent's response and, and not any closer. But I, I agree with what you both have said. Um, and to, to speak to a little bit of what you said, Alexis, about how is this related to uh, issues of feminism, I really think that this push for independence and autonomy at all costs that uh, Hananiah is drawing on and Sargent is um, kind of chafing against a little bit is or can be seen as a really misguided reaction to patriarchy and patriarchal history. Um, And I I think that's a a well-meaning reaction initially, um, and I, I understand wanting to react against um, historical, extreme, patronizing, legally stipulated dependence. I get that. That makes sense. Um, and, and we do as a society, as we move forward, kind of um, push back against our, our history in ways that sometimes overcorrect. So I get that, too. But I think that this rigid insistence on autonomy can hurt certain segments of the population more than others. Um, elderly people, children, disabled folks, etc. So I, I think for that reason, um, I really do appreciate Sargent's call to interdependence and relationship. Because, I mean, in, in that quotation that I read, um, the idea of being an inconvenience, being a burden, um, not being able to do everything for yourself... I mean, discounting aging, um, and, and of course this is going to increase as I age, but even discounting aging, like, that's my life right now. 
I mean, I think a lot of disabled people, particularly ones that are married, have to deal with the issue that, like, in sickness and in health is not some kind of nebulous future. It's, like, every day all the time to varying degrees. So what does that mean as my uh, in, in terms of my worth as a person? Like, does Richard Hananiah think that I am 70% of a person or 80% of a person? Um, you know, I, I don't know. I, I'm not sure I want to know the answer to that question, to be honest. Well, and I certainly don't have the personal experience on on that side of the issue, but it, it does, I think, relate to some of the conversations that we see around parents who stay home with their children, which is disproportionately going to be women. I mean, I, I have a law degree that I don't use on the regular. I stay home and homeschool my children, and I, I find it very fulfilling, and I think that actually I've grown as a person in ways that I, I wasn't growing um, when I was an attorney, and part of that's because I didn't particularly like the work, so I'm not a great example of, like, making a huge sacrifice there. Um, it was very much a choice that, that I, you know, celebrated being able to make and having the freedom to make. But, but yeah, you know, some, someone like Hananiah, even though I am currently physically healthy, although I have no guarantee how long that would, will continue, um, I'm, I'm not independent. My, my husband, you know, he earns the income that supports our family. Um, and, um, and so I'm not, you know, out contributing to the world in the same way, pulling myself up by my own bootstraps. Um, so I think there's there are certainly a lot of ways in which women are disproportionately affected by this kind of thinking. So that that I certainly um, can see. Although I'm also curious, I was looking over his piece, his piece, Hananiah's piece. Didn't read all of it because it was it was pretty long, and a lot of it was. Um, uh, sort of technical, reviewing some some of the statistics and information about physician-assisted suicide in other countries, but made me think how much of this is that American pioneer um, phenomenon that we see, and what, how might those attitudes be different in other countries that have a different view toward family and interdependence? Um, because it's 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 so easy to assume that how we think about things is how everyone thinks about things, and that's obviously not the case. He's Canadian, right? I believe so. Yeah, I, I think he's Canadian. I know he um, he writes quite a lot about um, Made, which is the the Canadian um, physician assisted suicide program. It's like a, a national program. Um, Sarah, what? go ahead. Oh yeah, I was so. As, as you all have been talking, for me, uh, if I can bring us back to the, the quotation that we've sort of been using as a jumping off point from that Hananiah, there were a few words that that jumped out at me as I was as I was taking a look at it. And as I was uh, thinking about the comments that you all have uh, that you two have made, um, I feel like they're. Uh, no, not I feel like I think um he gives something away when he uses the phrase less dignified than ending a proud and successful life. And then it goes on to say in diapers and with your brain rotting away. Um, but that phrase less dignified than ending a proud and successful life. And for me, the, the, uh, the words or the phrases that, that stuck out in particular were uh, dignified and proud and successful um, and um, while in the most generous sense, I think I, I, I understand what he's talking about having, you know, having seen uh, multiple family members um, decline into old age and into, um, you know, as they age and um, get closer to their own deaths, end up in similar positions to the one he describes um bluntly um to put it generously but it seems to me that if the that if dignity is associated with a proud and successful life it it seems that we might be kind of missing the point um of a, a life well lived um right and Pr proud of what and successful by whose terms 
Exactly, exactly. And and that if, by contrast, um, if we think about the dignity that can be possible um, through both suffering and humility, then I think you know, then I think we end up in a very different place than Hananiah does. Um, so, um, and so those two things I, I was thinking about as a counterpoint to, again, that idea of of proud of what and successful by whose standards. Well, where does the possibility for growing in humility and specifically growing in humility through suffering uh factor in and I think that ties back to the point that you made um, that you made several minutes ago Alexis about um, you know about Christ and Christ's suffering and the examples that we as Christians are called to emulate um, so um, so yeah in I think uh, at that point you know sergeant's sergeant's point that um, you know that 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 relationship um you know that that filial love, that filial piety, is the thing to pursue, not the thing to avoid. Which Hananiah seems to imply at various points in uh, these excerpts in uh, this particular newsletter. One 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 piece that, and I don't, you know, I think this is the conversation to to flesh this out. But as I was reading this, and I was thinking, okay, un- undeniably. There are hard parts, a lot of hard parts that I, I don't know anything about, about caring for someone who is in these various stages of life. Um, and and that, that that is inflicting some, some degree of pain or causing pain for someone else. Um, and I understand the desire to avoid that. But, but I kept thinking, well, okay, we're talking about inter- interdependence. Um, what is the role of the local church here? How can I... Rather than saying that the solution is for someone to end their own life because they're, you know, they're somehow less human as they age, um, and somehow it's, you know, damaging to other people to care for them, instead say, what can I do? How could I be looking at the, the members of my church family who are in this moment now? They're caring for someone, and they are tired, and it is hard, and it is painful, and it is any number of other things, and some of that I can't take on myself. I can't. I can't. Uh, you know, take on that role. But what are the things? What are the ways in which you know, if it's a burden, and then I, I realize that that's loaded language. But what are the ways I can share it? What are the ways that I can make it lighter, um, so that it is sustainable, so that they are encouraged as they go through this walk of humility and suffering, um, alongside a family member who is also dealing with um, growing in humility and suffering. Uh, so, so thinking about ways that we, um, who are outside of that intimate relationship, can still be trying to love well those who are in it yeah I, I think those are important questions and and questions I've been thinking about recently too um, I know I said this on our previous episode so I'm probably talking about this too much but um, I am a Stephen minister with my parish and uh, we're trained to be like layperson counselors who walk alongside uh, people who are going through a tough time and um, part of our training is undergoing continuing education after we finished our training. And this week's continuing education actually is uh, caring for someone who is aging. And so I, I've been reading all week um, in preparation for my meeting um, tomorrow about um, issues of dignity and aging and what it feels like to uh, lose autonomy over things like your money and the place you live and how you travel and um, making decisions for your life that you used to have complete control over. And so I, I think that that kind of empathy, whether you're doing it through a, um, a kind of structured um, training or just through making an attempt to listen to people who are in different stages of life than you are in different situations than you are, um, absolutely is the responsibility of, of the local church to, to care for its members. Uh, okay, so I, I think we've said uh, quite a bit about this first piece. Uh, are the two of you okay with moving into the second one now? Sure. Yes. Okay, so uh, 
I will be honest that I picked the first piece because I wanted to talk about it, and I picked the second one because I knew who else was going to be on this episode with me, and I wanted to hear the two of you talk about it. So the second piece is about um, education for boys uh, specifically, and since you are uh, a Catholic educator and a mother of two young boys, respectively, uh, I thought that you would have some thoughts here. So how or why is this discussion of uh, education geared specifically to boys an expansion, uh, a necessary expansion of um, feminist issues and questions, do you think? Well, I think that um, kind of like we've already mentioned uh, in our discussion this evening, um, any discussion that is going to sort of fully examine, um, you know, what it means to um, what it means to live and move in the world as women. Um, and for us from a Christian worldview necessarily has to um necessarily has to also consider what um, what living and moving in the world as women um, means for uh, means for our relationships with uh, men and with boys that uh, that if what we've been talking about so much is interdependence or relationship that um, that we are not free from having to consider these things we have the freedom for considering these things and so to be you know to sort of be fully human and fully relational is to and to be you know and to love in the christian sense that we're called to is to will the good of the other as other but that also means considering what the other needs right in order to will the other's good so I did find um, that a, a particularly uh, poignant uh, aspect of this particular uh, this particular newsletter to consider as I was reading it. I really like what you're saying about willing the good of the other as other because I think that necessitates in considering the other's needs, considering how those needs are de facto other to our own, like. Looking specifically for our blind spots in the kind of fish doesn't know it's in water way. Like, what what does the fact that I experience the world as a woman mean in terms of what do I not know about what it is to experience the world as a man and a boy, and what do I need to learn in order to love those people in my life well? Alexis, you are raising boys um what what are your thoughts about this well once again i i didn't i, I appreciated her introduction where she she says you know hey we in this in this newsletter they talk about the ways the world doesn't fit women um and if the world sometimes doesn't fit women we have to accept that that means sometimes it's probably not going to fit men either and what does that look like and that was sort of the jumping off point but but again as with the previous piece it it seemed like we're talking about human persons and caring well for human persons um whether they are distinctly male or distinctly female um the one of the commenters that she highlights uh brought up the philosophy of Charlotte Mason. Always makes me happy to read that. That's actually the, the philosophy that we're following in our homeschool a little bit. Um, and Charlotte Mason is very big on children are born persons. They are persons already. They are not going to be persons one day. They're persons now. And that, that affects how we educate them if we think they're already persons deserving of um, dignity and respect and and that they already are unique people um, and that there's there's benefit to then taking that into account and tailoring what you're doing to fit the actual human person you're working with. But but reading the piece and then going back and reading the, the original piece that these comments were originally responsive to, um, it really seemed to highlight how in some ways schizophrenic our current education system is. We can't 
really decide what we want it to be or to do. Um, and so some of the, the specific examples that were highlighted as points of friction for, for boys or men um, where it didn't fit them are in some ways functions of scale. Um, and some of the commenters highlighted this, what you have to do if you're going to have 30 kids in a classroom or what it is easiest to do or, or whatever. Um, and then some of it is just trying to figure out, you know, what, what are you trying to accomplish? I mean, we, our local public school only offers full day kindergarten. Um, and I understand that there's a lot of people in our community. I, I suspect that a main reason for that is um, there's a lot of people who, are, who need childcare and childcare is expensive and school can be childcare and that's beneficial. And I am sure that there are students for whom it will take more time with that student to get them ready for first grade. Kindergarten is notoriously difficult, um, as I understand it, because you have kids coming in at such a variety of levels and you're trying to get everybody ready for first grade. Some of those kids don't need seven hours, five days a week to be ready for first grade. They just, they just don't. Um, but when you're trying or to get... Or can't handle it. Or can't handle it. And if you're, if you're trying to get 30 kids ready, it's going to take a lot longer than you're doing one. And parents sometimes need a place for, um, for kids to be. And so... Um, I, I understand that those are limitations, and I, I, I'm glad that there is a way to provide child care for families because I know it's exorbitant and you can't find spots and all of those things. Um, but while we have those pieces, it's going to be hard to design a system that has the flexibility to be tailored for individuals when we're doing it on the scale we're doing it. And actually, I was, I was thinking about this because of um, Danny Anderson of Sectarian Review recently put up on his Substack um, a piece talking about the chatbot technology and its effect on uh, writing instruction and saying, well, actually, maybe part of this is we just need to get rid of the way we have these, this obsession with measurable assessment. Uh, and that's part of what seems to be a piece of this. We need to be able to educate kids in a way where we've got these measurables so we can keep track of everybody and know how everybody's doing, make sure nobody's being left behind. There's all these pieces to it. And I, I understand them and they make sense in their context. But overall, it doesn't seem to be conducive to being able to tailor that experience to the thriving of children who are not all the same. Um, so I, I don't want to be, I mean, we have a kid who does, we, our little boy, they actually let him do part-time um, public school. It's been great. We can send him in. He doesn't need to be there all day, so they let him come, and he can come for a couple of hours and work on the social skills that he is still developing. Um, so we've had great experiences with our public schools. I don't mean to be speaking in a way that's disrespectful. I just think what they're trying to do, they've got some conflicting directives, um, and I don't know that we as, as an American society have a clear vision of what we want them to do. And so therefore, they're not able to do all the things we're handing to them. I hope that makes some kind of sense. No, I, I think it does. And I think that, um, I mean, I, I agree with you about kind of s struggling with this idea of measurable outcomes. Um, I When I was still an educator, I felt much the same. But I, I understand um, that teachers are kind of caught between a rock and a hard place there because particularly if you are aiming for uh, government support um, and, and you want to be funded, um, you have to give them some kind of quantifiable something. So it's, it is, it's a difficult situation. Yeah, I would, uh, I would agree with all of that, and um, and I think you both made uh, some really good, uh, some good points, and ones that that echo some of some of my thoughts about it. Um, and I think Alexis, you might have alluded to this a few minutes ago. That yeah, some of the some of the thoughts that I had as I was reading this particular piece. Um, you know, some of the comments about, for example, a largely lay female professoriate in um, in K-12 schooling these days and sort of what that means. Um, like we mentioned a little bit ago, um, 
about, you know, who we are as persons interacting with people who experience the world differently as young boys, um, as young men, uh, kind of becomes or could become part of a much broader discussion than we might want to have on this particular episode about uh, the workforce more broadly and um, and education in particular and, you know, for example, why. Uh, why, at least at this point in the American education system, there are so many women uh, teaching um, in these fields. Um, and then I think, Alexis, also I had um, I had some similar thoughts about the, the purpose of the uh, current education model that is in place and trying to, I think you used the phrase like, you know, uh, work it at scale, Um and that, yeah, on on the one hand, if if we look back to, and again, this might be a much bigger conversation, if we look back to sort of the Prussian model origins of some of the American education system, um, like are like are the purported end goals of the original Prussian model ones that um, you know ones that are are still needed. Today and if not, then yeah. What does you know? What should the system look like instead, um, in order to best meet the needs of those who need to learn, those who come to learn, um, and yeah, those were some of my initial thoughts. Well, and I, I have to imagine that a lot of this has been exacerbated in the wake of COVID, where you have, in many cases, an even greater deficit in some of the social skill development for kids who've been more isolated over the last couple of years. And I realize there'll be some academic um, deficiencies as well, and I know a lot of people are very concerned about that. Um, but, you know, we're, we're at a time where there's sort of a, a peak opportunity to appreciate what else you need to be able to do besides sit and read your book. Um, and I say that as the parent of a little boy who would love nothing better than to be left alone to read his book all the time. So um, even my, my kids are not, are not necessarily typical within um, the, the stereotypes about, about little boys. But, but even then, you know, he, he, when he's, you know, reciting his lesson to me, cause we, we home, I homeschool him. He can get up and he can run victory laps. You know, the other day he made a connection in math and he was like kind of yelling it while he kind of ran around the room. And I was like, this is great. Like, this is a connection he's being made, you know, about this math concept. We're building these these ideas and associations of, of confidence and positive interactions, all that. I wouldn't want 30 kids running around doing a victory lap every time they understood their math lesson. I, I, I do get it. Um, but... Uh, but yeah, just just the opportunity to think about what what we want this this poor education system to do because it, it's it's being asked to do all of the things, um, and it it the more we ask it to do, the I think the less it can do them those things well. I mean, that's certainly the case for me. The more things I'm asked to do, the less I do any of them well. So, um, I, one other thing that I did think about because the original piece she was reacting to was a, a piece advocating for redshirting boys at a higher rate than girls that is just starting them later into kindergarten or having them repeat kindergarten. Um, and that's a conversation that we had with my oldest because he he was not as socially advanced. The difficulty we had is that, like with a lot of kids, there's a lopsidedness there. He was way beyond everybody else academically. Holding him back another year uh, maybe would have given him some opportunity to develop socially, but would have really it caused some challenges for him academically being that much further ahead of the level of instruction and not wanting this poor teacher to have to be trying to teach that wide of a spectrum of um, of levels to try and take him, him into account as this outlier. So I think we do also need to think about what does it look like for boys who are more advanced in some subject areas. If you say, okay, you redshirt them, but what happens if they're really, they've really got an aptitude for math or for reading, and now they're reading four or five levels ahead of their class instead of just one or two, or um, the, the things, and of course, a bored, a bored little boy or bored little little girl, any child who's bored in class, it's not usually a recipe for cooperative um, classroom behavior and optimal learning. So I think it did sort of no, neglect that. Not- <laughs> that that the, the angle. The number of times I had to stay in at recess because I was reading under the desk because I was already done with my work so many times. Yeah. 
So, so yeah, I think you need to sort of take into advance. And you know, my husband's a big fan of the the one room schoolhouse approach, um, which you know doesn't necessarily scale super well either. But where you had the freedom to float up or down subject by subject, and you could read your math lesson with an upper level grade if that's what you were ready for. And if you needed to float down a level for your reading, you could do that. So there are different approaches that have different strengths, and I'm sure they have other weaknesses as well. But um, it certainly is a strength of homeschooling that you have the ability to try different things on and tailor things more to what fits your uh, your child and your family. But again, not everyone has that luxury of, of the time or the, the inclination and the support to, to do that. So uh, we're, we're getting along in time here. So I, if it's OK with the two of you, I'm going to move on to our uh, last question so that we can get to our third segment more or less on time. Uh, so I've mentioned already that one of the things that made me uh, subscribe to this newsletter is the community conversation, the incorporation of past reader comments into later issues. Uh, were there any reader comments that stood out to you as thought-provoking or particularly um, interesting contributions to conversation that you wanted to mention? I had two, I mean, I interacted with a lot of them, and a lot of them gave me a lot to think about, but there were a couple comments, and see if I can find where I wrote them down. One of them, someone had commented on the school piece, um, how designing schools for neurodivergent or disabled kiddos and inclusion helps everyone, and they were talking about how the sort of more you were able to to adapt to the needs of these spe specific groups of people who we think of as having more needs, the better you could serve everybody because everybody has different needs. Um, and I thought that was a helpful um, way to frame it. And then there was another comment, and I'm not finding it right now, that basically pushed back on, on someone had, uh, it might have been actually in the previous piece, um, someone had said, well, what if what if the answer here is, is single-sex education institutions? Like, what if it's just to have a girl's school and a boy's school? And someone else had said, you know, well, you need you need practice interacting with and honoring the opposite sex. And then someone else uh, had commented, essentially, someone who knows how to teach stereotypical little boys and stereotypical little girls is going to be better able to teach the little girl who is more active, more of a tomboy, more stereotypically uh, having these attributes that are often associated with, with uh, being a little boy. Like, just... The, the squirrely little girl who can't sit still. It's not like it's just little boys who behave that way. So that idea of actually being able to have the skill set training and support to accommodate both gender norms um, allowed you to better serve kids wherever they fell and however they they fit, um, as whether they were quieter or louder or more energetic or less energetic. Um, so again, that, that, th that through line of the more we can accommodate different kinds of people, the better we can serve all of the people. And I thought that was a helpful point. I like that you're bringing up the fact that these comments often have quite intricate threads and respond to each other, because I think there are so many places, particularly on the internet, of course, where um, in comment threads, it's just about people talking to hear or see themselves talk and I, I really don't feel that in this community I another reason that I love it so much is because I think people really do want to help and listen to and speak to the issues other people are dealing with um, in in a meaningful way and so I, I really found those comment threads that were actually talking to each other rather than talking at each other um, a, an incredibly edifying internet experience that I think I, I don't often get to feel. Yeah, one of the uh, questions, one of those exchanges that that I did notice in the uh, in the schooling piece um, had a woman responding to a gentleman who pointed out an advantage to, uh, well. Um, well, actually, so identified, yeah, this idea of red-shirting boys may improve boys' success in schools, but at the cost of burning one more year of their lives in school. Um, and then uh, uh, um, someone responded to that and pointed out, rather than, uh, in this case, you know, using the term, rather than red-shirting boys, what if 
girls schooling started earlier and then brought in the biological clock uh, argument. So, or pointed that out that the current system was one originally designed for boys development, not girls and not even all boys development. Um, so is there a way to meet? I, I liked the, the way this exchange um, through raising these constructive concerns still managed to try to think about, um, again, think about relationship, sort of not explicitly, but sort of implicitly talking about uh, boys and girls uh, in relationship to each other, in relationship to their schooling. And I appreciated that exchange as well. Uh, thank you both. Um, so I, I think I, based on what has been said so far, I think I can speak for uh, all the panelists here and say um, that we think if you are someone who is looking for more examples of um, rich community grounded in uh, religiously inflected feminism, that other feminisms is a great place to go, uh, we would recommend it. Uh, and now I think it's time for um, our favorite segment of every episode, uh, the passing on segment where we recommend things that we think you should read, watch, listen to, otherwise expose yourself to. Um, Alexis, what recommendation do you have for us? Um, once again, I have two. Um, sorry, not sorry. Uh, but that's because there's one sort of for each piece, if you think of it that way. Um, the One of the books is a book called Aging with Grace, Flourishing in an Anti-Aging Culture by Sharon Betters and Susan Hunt. Uh, the book has a, a sort of substantive through line to it, but what, what I really love about it is each chapter includes little vignettes from women in their later stages of life and, and giving a, a little glimpse into what that looks like and realizing that they are all widowed or caring for um, uh, an ailing husband or bedridden or um, whatever whatever the situation is. Like these, these are people who are um, reaching the end of their life and that affects their ability to have um, uh, what their ministry looks like in the church. It may be a ministry that's largely a ministry of prayer now because they cannot leave their, their bed or um, that it is a, a time of loneliness because you know, you don't you don't go through your whole life with your spouse unless you widow them or you happen to simultaneously get struck by lightning. Like it just that there is going to be a season where one of you goes on without the other. And it was it was a really encouraging look at what it looks like to be faithful and follow Christ in those seasons. And just the practical reminder that this is coming. Um, I'm, I'm you know, I've been young my whole life and I, I it's so easy to forget that that's not uh, an indefinitely sustainable state of affairs that that age is coming you know if the lord tarries and my health holds out i i will be old and that will have um, effects on my body and my relationships and my ministry and and all these things and so it was really really helpful um for me to think through some things that i just i hadn't spent the time on i hadn't had to and um and it was uh, a bit of an awakening there. So that was a great book. I highly recommend it. And then on the education side, um, like I said, um, uh, they mentioned Charlotte Mason in uh, in some of the comments. And there's a whole six-volume set that you can read by Charlotte Mason if you're so inclined. Assuming that most people are not so inclined, there's a book called For the Children's Sake, Foundations of Education for Home and School by Susan Schaefer McCauley. And I'm, if I remember correctly... It's Schaefer Macaulay because her parents were, um, her dad was Francis Schaefer. So um, anyway, she is essentially summarizing uh, the the ideas behind Charlotte Mason's philosophies, particularly things like the children are born persons, um, and giving them a little bit more, uh, fleshing them out a little bit more on the theological side. Um, but it's it's an accessible book that talks about some of those those philosophies and and how to apply them in, in an educational context. So also a great book. And then I, the one other thing I would say is we have an episode on a book called Invisible Women that talks about from a design perspective ways in world in which the world is literally not made for women. And we talk all about that. And it's a fantastic book. And you should go listen to the episode, which we'll link to in the show notes. Thanks, Alexis. Sarah, what do you have for us? 
Well, uh, this uh, this time around, I'm bringing over a book that I'm actually uh, working through with my Bible study. And um, with apologies uh, to the professor, because I'm not entirely sure how to pronounce his last name, um, this one is called Jesus and the Jewish Roots of Mary by Brant Petrie. And um, we've been, yeah, we've been working through it working through some of the uh, some of the Catholic Church's teachings about Mary and then what each chapter does is go back into uh, scripture uh, looks at the um, looks at the scriptural basis for those teachings and then actually um, does some pretty uh, some pretty intricate um, explication of uh, of well-known, uh, scripture passages uh, in the original Greek, and then follows those up with um, with uh, documentation from um, from uh, first and second, third century uh, Jewish sources to uh, to sort of make those connections. It's been a fabulous read, and I've really been enjoying it. And we're about halfway through the book now, um, but it's. Uh, wholeheartedly recommended to any of us who want to know a little bit more about um, about why uh, we say some of the things we say about Mary. That sounds great. I actually think that we uh, owned that book. I think that our RCIA director gave it to us and Michael read it, but I have not. Uh, so that's a that's a great endorsement. I'll have to add it to the list. So I am going to just kind of go straight down the middle here. Um, I am recommending Leah Labresco Sargent's book, Building the Benedict Option, uh, which I love very much. And I think actually I've recommended on this show before, but it's it's so good I'm fine with recommending it twice. Um, it is a response to the rather notorious uh, Rod Dreyer book, The Benedict Option, um, though Leah Sargent's book is much more practical. Um, it is about how to uh, sort of make yourself more community-minded and create the kind of Christian community that Dreyer is talking about through um, listening to people around you, having the kind of community-building, supporting, empathetic events um, that will create that kind of community where we um, keep Christ at the center of things and also support uh, our brothers and sisters. Um, it's a, a really beautiful book that was really helpful to me when I was going through um, a, a very lonely time of um, having moved to a new city, being between jobs, um, we were living with my husband's parents, and I, I really kind of felt community-less um, in that period, and I, I read this book, and it made me see um, a, a light at the end of the tunnel, so I would recommend uh, building the Benedict Option. Uh, thank you for listening to the Christian Feminist Podcast. We'd love to hear from you. If you have topic or reading recommendations for future shows, or if you want to just drop us a line and say hi, you can do so at christianfeministpodcast at gmail.com. You can also find us on our Facebook page or at the network's Twitter handle at CH Radio Network, and check out the show notes from this or other episodes the Christian Humanist blog at christianhumanist.org. The Christian Feminist Podcast is a member of the Christian Humanist Radio Network. Kristen Philippic is our press liaison. For Alexis and Sarah, I'm Victoria. Tune in in two weeks when our panel will discuss the popular children's television show, Bluey. Until then, in essentials unity, in non-essentials liberty, and in all things love. <laughs>